Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 59, which means this is the last week you get to enjoy this particular piece of intro music. Hooray! Uh, hey, my guest this week is Kara Meredith. She and I really hit it off, I would like to say, I think. She is a writer, speaker, conversationalist, as you'll hear her say, formerly a high school English teacher and various other wonderful things. She has got an amazing book out called The Color of Life that I read in its entirety, which is not always the case with all of my guests. But I did read this one, and I was deeply impacted, as you will hear in our discussion. Uh, really, what we're talking about here is how for white people to enter into discussions of race, injustice, reconciliation. So there may be a few things that you hear here, if you are not a, uh, a white person, that may be a little triggering or may make you feel a little like you're rolling your eyes. That is okay. I've been learning a lot from a lot of different people, and one of the things I've been learning is that the role for whites to play is distinct and different from the role of other people. And you'll hear, we, we get right into it off the bat, that uh, we have such a temptation as whites just to fix, just to fix. And so if you're trying to understand what your role to play is in this space, then have a listen to this and see if Kara's words don't, uh, don't help you out. So here we go. I've got my two-thirds decaf coffee. <laughs> oh no, do you not drink caffeine anymore? This is horrible. <laughs> that's, that's my sobriety. No, uh, I... Um, yeah, it does bad things in my body. So Isn't it amazing? I don't drink very much caffeine. Yeah. 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 I mean, we all of us start growing up and we start, you know, I don't I don't <laughs> think I mean, we can save this for the conversation. I don't think that our I don't think our bodies change as much as we begin to wake up to our bodies, which is also <laughs> quite relevant to this conversation. Yes. You know what I mean? Like and maybe maybe your body really did change, but like I don't know. My husband is in sobriety now for alcohol. Mm. Uh, like, I don't think anything changed, but he woke up sure. to what needed to not happen in his body anymore. So, yes. Yeah, so one day yeah. in our 30s, we all start to wake up and realize it hurts. It just fundamentally uh -huh. hurts. Period. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but maybe it always hurt. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we just hit it with different things because we're good at doing that. Yeah. Well, there's your introduction to Carl <sighs> Meredith, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Kara, for joining <laughs> me on already? the show today. Well, we've been recording since the very beginning, and I just have to oh. decide where to cut in. But that seems like a really oh, great mid-conversation place to cut in. Anyway, I'm so glad to be doing this. I'm really touched. I uh, f Backstory that maybe you won't be aware of. Uh, Harper Collins sent me a copy of your book ages and ages and ages and ages ago, like, when, like before it was, was released. And I have that I won't show you over here an enormous stack of books books that I'm always trying to triage and shift the order of. And, and then I came across you on social media before I'd had a chance to read it. And I really liked what you were saying, what you were sharing. And I was like, oh, I think I've got this book. And I think you had just posted like, it was six months, you guys. And I was like, <laughs> oh. So then I emailed Harper and I said, I'd love to do an interview. And I and my guy was like, hey, I'm, I'm reaching out to the, the US team and I'm getting nothing. Like nothing's coming mm. back, which is when I went to your website and sent you an email directly. And I said, oh, hey, Dave, um, I just emailed her myself. And she got back to me like an hour later. So <laughs> he said, thanks for doing my job for me. So, <laughs> there you go, Dave. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> there you go, Harper. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, f- friends, and there's I, I, that <laughs> exactly. So, friends, I want to. I'm going to do my best to to shut up and let Kara talk because she is a wonderful person and voice and has a really powerful story. And uh, and I've just finished reading her book. I read it all over this course of this Thanksgiving in Canada weekend, real and proper Thanksgiving. And mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so if Kara was to say to me, hi, Jonathan, how are you doing today? I would say not great because more than ever before, I've begun mm. to feel a lot of things that I have the luxury of not feeling. Mm. Um. And your words here have invited in me into like it was a journey that I think I was already on for sure, and we have already already been trying to figure out my role to play as a white man, especially as a mm. like not just a white person but a white male with a platform mm-hmm. and uh something about the way you've written your story here and and what you've presented was just I think like the final cracking my heart wide open mm. um, so i feel i feel been feeling pretty bad for the mm. last week or so uh and i'm thankful for for your part to play in that so uh that's super cryptic if you have no idea who she is <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit in your own words about who you are where you came from and then uh and then i'll start quoting you from your book Yeah, well, my name is Kara Meredith, and apparently I make people feel bad. (laughs) So that might be the new title to add to my job list. Um, But yeah, I'm a writer and a speaker uh, during the day. I call myself, actually, I've been adding recently to my bio a writer, a speaker, and a conversationalist, um, which I think that's a huge part of what we're talking about, is not just making it one-sided, but when it comes to conversations of justice, race, and privilege, um, especially as white folks, and especially as those who are entering into the conversation, maybe for the first time, um, we, we actually engage in conversation and not just one-sidedness. Um, but otherwise, I live in Oakland, California, in the U.S. Um, I am married to a man named James Meredith. We have two sons, ages five and seven. Uh, previous or prior to being a writer and a speaker, I was a high school English teacher for a number of years. And then I was in, um, the nonprofit outreach ministry sector. So a lot of my job now, I was telling a friend last week, um, when I meet up with folks, cause I try to have like one meeting a day, um, in order to, to help my extrovert, um, extroverted heart. But, um, I, a lot of times I'm meeting up with folks in ministry, um, and I, I think there's an understanding that exists there, uh, but but it's also it's meeting up with whoever will hang out with me, um, quite literally. So so that's <laughs> what I do. I I um, I dance with words, and I seek to uh, to tell and elevate stories. Um, and and I was honored to publish or to have published my first book this last year. So I love that, and I can connect with 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 a lot of that. I too am a extrovert who schedules coffee dates for the sake of his sanity. My wife takes the car to work every day, and I am homebound. And mm-hmm. you know, I clean the house and prep for the children and pack the lunches and do all the things. And mm-hmm. you know, everyone's like, "But you talk to amazing people online and live the podcast dream." I'm like, "Yeah," and living the nightmare also mm-hmm. of like, "I'm home alone." 
<laughs> Woe, is Woe is me. Where are all my people? <laughs> it's, it's a hard reality, humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yes. spent, I spent 14 years also in nonprofit Christian ministry. Mm. So uh, I can. Were uh, we in the same nonprofit Christian ministry? <laughs> almost certainly not. I worked for, okay. uh, for a large charismatic church in, in Toronto. Uh, uh, oh, I definitely did not work for a large charismatic <laughs> church in Toronto. There you go. <laughs> but that's fun. That's fun. And I'm a kids pastor. So, you know, teaching, I can, you know, like, this is fun. I feel like, mm-hmm. actually, as as I was finishing reading your book and I was messaging you on Instagram, I'm like, I really feel like we would be friends. I feel like at some point I would like to come to California and uh, and have a cup of coffee and or glass of wine. Um it seems like a great idea. Okay, so here's the here's the first real huge problem that I ran into with your book, okay? Also, feel free to come over. I don't want to leave that dangling. It did as, dangle a little come bit. Come on over. It, it did. Okay. It did. And then you just jumped in. So, yes, Jonathan, you are welcome to come over to my house whenever. You may stay in our guest room slash my office, um, and we will drink coffee, decaf coffee, tea, or um, the occasional glass of wine. There you go. Two, you two are welcome decaf. in this space. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I love when two extroverts get together and don't let those things go. <laughs> yeah. uh, two, two self-confident people who've been through a journey. So yes. you wrote early on. So your book, Kara's book, The Color of Life, is like it's like a memoir, but it's like really thoroughly researched and it's got all these like words that I'm looking for. <laughs> when, when, when you're a writer and you can't find words. Okay, let's just get to the point. You said white people <laughs> fix things. Mm-hmm. And I had to put the book down. Mm. And, you, and you wrote, it's what I did in ministry. It's what I did as a white person. White people fix things. And I thought that is, that is exactly my experience. That is exactly the world that I have grown up in, where I'm told I'm welcome everywhere. There is no space mm. I cannot insert myself into. Uh, no crowd I cannot wow. No problem I cannot solve. Mm-hmm. And I realized right off the bat that I think that's what's left me, and perhaps others, but let's talk just about me, what's left me feeling so uncomfortable. Mm. I have there's clearly awful injustice at a personal and systemic cultural at all these different levels and not just in the united states here in canada and everywhere around the world that human beings inhabit mm-hmm. and my instinct is to get in there and solve it rub my mm-hmm. sleeves up meet the people help them out it's you know, even just saying that, it brings to mind the absurdity. Is it, is it in Borat or one of those ridiculous movies where he like travels and, and, and he brings this Israeli guy and this Palestinian guy together and he's like, yeah, let's figure out how to make you guys be friends. Mm. And there's this joke about how like, you know, they both like hummus. And he's like, look, problem solved. And I'm just like, how white? Um, mm-hmm. So... Tell us that story. Fill us in on that conversation, because that was a really special moment for you. Yeah. You know, so for me, you and I share. Um, it, it, we share in common, and, and this will be something I'm sure that we'll discover 
over the course of time in our friendship, um, as our friendship has birthed. But it sounds like you and I come from a very similar place in space that um, we have had to our advantage, um, not even speaking about the color of our skin yet, but um, but this is speaking about the color of our skin. But we've also had to our advantage, it sounds like, that we um, have been able to step into situations and be applauded. Um, We probably probably don't do things unless we know that we can succeed. And even if we can't succeed, we end up... um, we, we know what we have to do in order to fix the situation. And, and so for me, when I met my husband, and this is in the chapter, Will I Love You? And it was when he and I said, I love you for the first time. And at the time I was in ministry. And, and really, even though I had been, I, even though I had begun wrestling with my own racial identity as a white person, I still very much thought that it wasn't about me, but I thought it was about everyone else and everyone else therefore being a person of color. So it was about white folks and it was about people of color. And if the problem existed when it came to systems of injustice, so in the U S and that's particularly the context that I speak from, but if the, if systems within education, within prison, um, uh, within, um, just the government as a whole, we had another, uh, black woman, um, who was shot and killed this last weekend in her home, uh, doing nothing very wrongly, um, killed simply for being black, quite honestly. And to me, I, as I began to wrap my head around this, both in meeting and marrying my husband and also when it came to ministry, I didn't understand why or how we couldn't just snap our fingers and like I wrote, um, just go in and fix the problem and either put on a really good, um, program or say the right things to change hearts, um, or whatever else it was. But I just, I had in my mind, because again, I, I wrote, if only I could, if only I could fight back and fix the problem because seeing the big picture, finding a solution and fixing the problem was what I did. But, but part of the invitation, and I think that is at the heart of the invitation, especially to white readers, because the, the first audience for this book is a white audience. Um, it's a white audience like you and me. It's a white audience that doesn't think issues of race have anything to do with us. But part of, um, part of realizing that, um, (laughs) maybe this was bigger than I had given it um, credit for was realizing, um, that I, that I had to let go of my power because I couldn't just go in and fix the problem. This wasn't about the white lady going in and saying the right things or doing the right things or um, whatever, whatever other words we want to put around it, being a white savior. But I entering in meant that I had to enter into the pain. Um, I had to enter into the injustice, which meant that I had it had to be something that had to start on a deeper inside level. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I've been following Christina Cleveland for a year, maybe two years. I had her on the show earlier, and that was very, very special to just mm. sit here and, and listen. I said to a friend at the time, I said, I'm not sure that there's any other teacher, theologian, anybody at this mm. present point in my life who I'm learning mm. more from than, mm. than Christina Cleveland. Mm. And she owes me nothing. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it's it's this weird dynamic for me to get used to. You know, mm. I'm, I, she has a really active Patreon community and I'm in there reading and learning and sometimes mm. posting comments, but it's, it was one of the first times in my life that I had a very, very profound sense that this community was not for me. This did not mm-hmm. exist for my benefit. The fact that I was welcome and allowed to mm-hmm. listen and learn was gracious and wonderful but this did not exist for me. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And to have to sit there and feel a kind of discomfort that I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever really had to face in my life before felt very adult and mm-hmm. foreign to me. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm, I'm feeling like this is it as we come to yeah. really have our eyes and ears opened. You know, you, you mm-hmm. said, Lord, give me eyes to see and ears to hear the pain and hurt around mm-hmm. me. And I feel like we, we love to sing those songs, you know, Lord, mm. break my heart for what breaks yours. <laughs> um, which is really easy to sing in like the midst of our, our happy white privileged worlds when our worst mm. problems are, you know, well, you know, do we believe in penal substitution or not? Um, mm. You said as well, and this, this, I think, is is part of the paradigm shift, and I'd be interested to know, hear you unpack this more. You talked about Jesus coming to the woman at the well mm-hmm. with a need that she is equipped to meet. He has no bucket. He is thirsty. She can draw water from the well. And you explained that their exchange, therefore, is mutual, but it's mutual at Jesus' intentional choice, that he has no power to hold over her in this exchange. And I thought to myself, how many contexts are white people not holding buckets? How many mm. times in my life do I find myself where I don't already have what I need? Mm-hmm. Where's that coming from for you? That particular story? Yeah, or just just choosing to choosing choosing to be mutual when you could be white. How about that? Mm. Jonathan Puddle for the win. Uh, choosing to be mutual when we could be white. Um, I had a friend a couple months ago and I'll circle back to the woman at the well, but, um, a dear friend of mine from high school, she also is white. Um, and she has a son who's a, who's a little bit younger than our sons, but, um, her son is also mixed race. He's half black and white. And for her, um, marrying and then, and then later divorcing, um, her son's father, um, but really beginning to, wrap her mind around what it meant to raise a young brown boy in um, in the town that we grew up in, which is very um, historically and present, uh, present tense, present day um, white. She, that was kind of her wake up call. And she really began to grapple with bigger conversations. But what she said to me this last summer, um, when I was visiting in Oregon, she said, she said, Carol, once you begin to see, you can't unsee. And that's somewhat like the prayer um, that I began to pray. And part of it um, for you and or for your listeners who are um, who are Enneagram savvy, um, I, I, my one claim to Enneagram fame is that I've, I liked it long before it became popular, um, long before they began, you know, last week I saw I saw a clip of um, of the and all the Enneagram numbers set to uh, what was it? 
The Enneagram Rhapsody. Oh yes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, I haven't seen it, but that oh, sounds amazing. I'm gonna go and listen to I'll that. I'll you I'll send it to you. But I sat there going I sat there going, oh, the Enneagram forefathers and foremothers are just crying in their graves right now as they listen to what it's become. It was never <laughs> meant to be like this like production up on stage of a church, no less. No offense to the church who made this happen. But I say that because I'm a seven on the Enneagram. And, and at the root of being a seven means that the last thing I want to do is embrace pain. And so I do anything and everything I can to run from pain, to numb myself from pain, to fill myself with the things that will not um, that, that will keep me from pain so that I don't have to feel pain. Yeah. And for me, that was meeting my husband and entering into the Meredith family and having uh, biracial children. That was the impetus for me to begin to enter into the pain, mm-hmm. even though it, it is it is my privilege. It has always been my privilege to distance myself. But for me, it was one of those that if I truly wanted to enter in, I had to do that. And I think for my friend, for whom the story that I was just telling, you know, her saying, once I began to see, I couldn't not see. I couldn't not see the way that the world was treating my son. I couldn't not see not only my son, but the bigger systems, because it's not about the individual, but it's about the systems as a whole, how those systems were affecting not only him, but all these folks of color in my community and in my state and in my country and around the world. So for me, um, discovering the discovering and or having rewritten that the the passage in John 4 of the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well for me it was one of those to quote Will Smith it, it felt like everything kind of flipped turned upside down you know that that which i had always believed about the passage which really was all about Jesus coming in and saving the day and calling her on her crap because she was a sexually immoral woman who had who had had five husbands and the man that she was now sleeping with was not her husband. And so obviously she was wrong in this situation. I mean, we can go back and like all the penal substitution folks are like, they're so excited. But, but for me, that was the moment of mutuality because we don't have to look at the scripture that way. But what does it mean then, not only for the story of the woman at the well, but again, for larger conversations? What does it mean for me as a white person to notice what I am bringing to the table and to lay down my power? Because the truth is, is that is that if I wanted to, I could just continue to relish in, in this cycle of it being all about me and or of it being all about people who look like me, whether that's in the, the, uh, theological circles, whether that's in educational circles, whatever else it is. But, but if everything in my world is only made up of people who look and think and act like me, then I, I'm missing the picture and we're all missing the picture. So, so for me, it was, it was the greatest invitation to just get knocked I mean, I wish I could cuss on your podcast, but to get knocked <laughs> on my butt, yes. you know, I, I don't, I don't know your listenership. They might be sad if I used another word, but the only um, episode where I've permitted yeah. swearing was between me and William Paul Young, because when you have Paul Young on okay. your show, you just let oh. anything happen. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you wrote the shack. All hail, all hail. Oh, WP. Yeah. So yeah, I don't so, know if that so, answers your no, question, yeah, sure. but well, yeah. Yeah. So, so that was your, your father-in-law's comment. And, and I perhaps not his comment verbatim, but your your summary of it that your white skin didn't matter, but the ignorance that sometimes accompanies whiteness was the issue mm-hmm. and remains the issue. Yeah. 
which perhaps is, is a helpful disclaimer if you are already feeling if you're listening to this mm-hmm. and, you, and you're not and you don't understand and you're you're like but i'm just white uh as can't isn't that okay like i can't change who i am yeah like i get that that talk of white supremacy makes people feel uncomfortable makes mm-hmm. white people feel uncomfortable and sure. uh and can sound like a political agenda so if you are mm-hmm. sitting there feeling super triggered Mm-hmm. It's okay that you're white. Uh, all the people with microphones in this conversation are white people. <laughs> it's okay to be white, but uh, maybe it's not okay to be ignorant, or maybe it's not mm-hmm. optimal. I mean, you know, you you said we you lack a complete picture, and that's that's got to be it, right? Like, yeah, if we serve. And serve is already a loaded word, but if we sure. love and pursue and are pursued by a God who mm. is infinite and created us and then gave us his own image and said, here, be like me, how can we possibly expect to have any remote frame of reference for who and what he's like without the entirety of the human race involved. Mm-hmm. But, but what I, what, okay, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. What I don't understand is why Christians specifically mm. seem to stumble over this. Mm. If anyone should already have language mm-hmm. to understand that we are one, it should be believers. Mm-hmm. I mean, am I crazy for thinking that? Like we, the body of Christ, the bride, like we have all this stuff about, mm-hmm. you know, well, the hand can't say to the foot, you're not a part of the body. And yet, even today, mm-hmm. it's so much the more fundamentalist branches of our mm-hmm. Christian family, a word that is even hard for me to say, mm-hmm. who dehumanize and seem mm-hmm. willfully ignorant, willfully ignorant. What? Why? You know, I, I think um, there are so many thoughts. Uh, we can go back to, um, I mean, I, I, I suppose first I go back to the, the passage of the Samaritan woman and um part of the beauty of that passage is that that in um in that story uh which is which is more than a story it's an account um obviously of of Jesus and his interaction with another person but but in that particular passage um when and as their um when and as their interaction becomes mutual the thing that also happens is that is that Jesus honors the particularities of her human humanity. And he honors the person. And that means that he honors the particularities of her personhood, meaning the particularities of who she is on um, both on the inside and the outside. So he honors the particularities of her story. Um, He doesn't, he doesn't expect her to change. That's oftentimes part of maybe part of the message that is, um, that is sometimes given um, when it comes to this story. But I, I also see it and I go, 
when I think about the differences between between um, between the two of them, not only for her as a woman and him as a man 2000 years ago in second century Judaism, but also for him as a Jewish man and her as a Samaritan woman, that completely changes things Be- because of, I mean, and this is where we could have a five point sermon. And this is actually one of my favorite sermons to preach, as you can probably tell. But preach it. when we think about those, um, though, the, the differences between them, the differences and the similarities. But when we think about how Jesus honors the particularities of her ethnicity, of her gender, of the stories that make her her, of all these different things, how do we not then say, yes, this is what we should be doing in the church? Mm. And I, I don't know the church in Canada like I know the church in the U.S., but um, the truth is that... Um, the U.S. right now is reliving. Um, I think if we were to talk to a lot of our, um, a lot of those who lived through the civil rights movement, um, as in the in the sixties, late fifties and sixties, um, and in particular talked um, with folks like my father-in-law and um, with different uh, African American stakeholders, um, mothers and fathers in the movement, I think they would say that we're reliving it. Um, I think that the truth is that. Um, is that leaning into not just justice, but reconciliation in particular in the church is messy. And I think that's part of why um, most churches still don't engage. And that's why we still have, you know, to quote, I just went over to grab this book, but I've been, I've been chewing for the last three months, probably on the autobiography of um, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Um, It's by Claiborne Carson. He directs the um, MLK Center over at Stanford University. Um, But it's phenomenal. And we've all heard the quote that 11 a.m., 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most divided time in America. Mm. Um, But I think that's still true. And I think that for a long time, the church has gotten away with not having to honor those particularities. So the church has gotten away, the white church at least, has gotten away with um, with being able to continue to remain white and to um, let let those who are holding the power mostly look the same. Um, I don't think anything is different from um, 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. I think that maybe with social media, we're beginning to um, we're beginning to see people speak up more. Um, which is different, or we're just at least hearing it more. Or back to point A, those of us those of us with ears to listen who have started to hear are actually hearing it, even mm. though it's not anything new. Mm. So it's just the same old hatred. Yeah. I'll take a brief pause to thank my Patreon supporters. You people are wonderfully amazing. Uh, I've got forty six people right now who are supporting me every month, and. They make this whole podcast possible. It's lots of work. I do it all myself. And I'm also writing. I've got a devotional that's very nearly uh, ready to go out to my patrons uh, as beta tester readers. It's very exciting, all about growing in self-love and seeing yourself the way God sees you. Also, I put out uh, another uh, supporters-only podcast today, all about John Christ and accountability and Christian celebrity culture. So if you want to hear some of my thoughts on that current event then jump on Patreon, $3 a month, and you'll get access to my supporters podcast as well as some exclusive writing behind the scenes and uh, peek at my upcoming podcast guests. I've got some pretty exciting guests coming up. So 
Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing these. Thanks for being supporters. I love you guys. And uh, back to the show. And to your question, your comment about the church in Canada, I shall make a blanket statement for Canada since I'm representing all of Canada for the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> Uh, I think Canadians would love to think that we are we no longer have racist problems here. Uh, mm. Canadians can be a little smug in their Canadianness, uh, but that's clearly BS. I mean, I mean, literally last week, for at the time of recording, mm. you know, the the leader of the third kind of third running political party is a Sikh man who wears a turban and has a big beard, and uh, he was meeting with some, you know potential constituents and, and citizens and folks and chatting. And, and, a, and a guy said to him, hey, you should cut off your turban and uh, you'd look more Canadian. Mm. And he very graciously, quickly was able to pivot and say, well, I think Canadians, there's a broad range of what Canadians look like. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he had grown up hearing this kind of thing all the time. But I, mm-hmm. I mean, two or three weeks ago, I was, we were speaking. Okay, I'm trying to remember exactly how it came up, but but it was this exact story. It was the woman at the well. We were teaching uh, a kids' church. I wasn't in charge of the lesson that Sunday. One, one of my one of my volunteers was, and and she w- had opened up the discussion with the kids on issues of race. And mm-hmm. I was really impressed. I had not anticipated she was going to go there. Mm-hmm. This is a, a white woman in her sixties, and uh, so we then, when we broke off into our smaller groups, got to open up some some discussion more kind of one-on-one and we've got a boy in our group who is of ethiopian descent uh raised here sounds like everybody else for all intents and purposes and he's like oh yeah when we at my last school i used to get called the n-word and i'm like you are you you would have been six seven years old Mm -hmm. in a country that would love to think of itself as mm-hmm. a progressive safe haven for people of all races and ethnicities and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hatred is here too in, in Canada. I, I do think it plays out differently. Um, it's not the same for sure. But as soon as you start talking about our treatment of indigenous people, it's very, very much the same. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, for any Canadians who are still holding on to, to that, pleasant illusion pop we don't live in a post-racial society i mean i i i feel like i always i continue to hear in the states uh you know we we live in a post-racial society obviously because we had a black man uh, who was who was actually mixed race but we had a black man in the presidency which could never have happened so clearly yeah we're fine so clearly we are past that point um but have you ever heard a person of color make that statement Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, so you brought up, uh, you brought up, I'm going to, I don't want to mispronounce her name, but Atatiana Jefferson's murder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to touch on that very quickly. I think you follow, uh, her name's Marcy, I think, Black Coffee with White Friends is her Instagram. She's one of my favorite humans. She's lovely. Yeah. She wrote this morning, and, and I, th- this, I think this will segue into the rest yeah. of this conversation. For me, the news of Atatiana Jefferson's murder feels a little darker and a little tighter than this black square. And she posted a solid square. Mm. 
-hmm. Instead of headlines like Fort Worth police officer fatally shoots woman in her home while checking Mm -hmm. on an open front door, I wish they read more like the truth. A Tatiana was just chilling at home when a police officer looked through her window and shot her. I wish I could tell you what home means to a black woman, especially a black Mm -hmm. woman who is caring for loved ones. I wish I could explain what it's like to come home after being a black woman all day long in a world that prefers white, thin, blonde, and blue-eyed over your remarkable gifts and beauty. I wish you knew what it felt like to cross the threshold that is yours without the white gaze dissecting your skin. Mm -hmm. Understand that black women know how to move in a world not made for them. We were reared our whole lives to live in those friendly fire spaces. And we move through those days thinking of the bliss and the shelter waiting for us at home. I wish you knew the peace that was stolen and replaced with this tightening black box of literally nowhere being safe for us any longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this, this is what began to happen as, as I was reading your story and drawn into your journey of having to feel your husband's pain and the generations of pain. Uh, is that compassion to a degree that was more than cerebral uh, began to open up down here. Um, Do you have a really super fast and easy five-point plan for how to develop compassion for people you don't have yet? (laughs) Keep talking. Finish your thought. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I mean... I've I've known about the wrongness. I've known about the wrongness my whole life. But I don't think I've really started to feel the pain until this week. Mm-hmm. And I don't entirely know if it was because of your story and the way you told it, or if it was the passage of time or the combination of all these things or the unending onslaught of choosing to watch and learn and listen to to people like like Marcy and, and others and mm-hmm. Dr. Cleveland. Do you do you know some of some of the ingredients specifically maybe for you that that w- w- maybe even just in story form when you, you woke up one day and were like it hurts and it didn't hurt mm. yesterday. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I don't know if there was a particular moment of waking up to um, the hurt. I do remember, and I I wrote about this in the book, um, but I I remember at one point, um, I remember hearing my husband tell the story of growing up black in Mississippi. And, um, And I remember one night, and I had probably heard it, I probably had heard it 15, 20 times by that point. Um, because it was oftentimes we would have folks come in and they'd be around the table. And, you know, I think especially for a lot of my good natured friends, um, most of whom at that point, I, you know, were still mostly white. So it was mostly white folks who were filling our space. Um, they wanted to understand, they wanted to enter in. Um, and so there was almost this excitement around doing so because we want, we want go back to the first conversation We want the quick and easy five-step solution. We want to know how to fix it. We want the steps for fixing racial injustice in our country and in our neighborhoods. We want to know what we can do so that we can just do it. And I remember him 
being asked that question and him beginning to answer and me realizing, wow, when he's, when he talks about this and this is not true any longer, it, it's, there's been, there's a lot of work that's been done that he has entered into on his own as well. But I remember thinking he tells this story almost robotically, almost uh, with, with rote memorization. Um, and, and it almost feels distanced from who he is. It's almost like someone else is telling this story. Like he's outside and of I himself reporting. On he's it. outside of himself. And I remember just having this moment of realization going, the reason why that happens is because he's protecting himself because he's not just telling this story because someone wants to hear it. But, but every time he tells the story, he relieves that relives that pain and that pain has become part and parcel who he am and who he is. And this is what he carries. And this is what he lives with and in every single day. And this now is what I live with. And this is what has entered into our marriage. And this is what has become a part of me. And so I think it was probably in hearing that story and just in even beginning to put those two together, um, that it, for me, it also became one of those, oh, wow. What, what have I done here? What have I done in contributing to this? Um, not just within our own marriage, but then beginning to put the bigger pieces of to get of the pieces of the puzzle together. Because I think it really was, it, it really was all about me coming in and just fixing things. And, and so it was instead a matter of my responsibility and my invitation here is, um, is, 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 12 fold, but, um, it's to enter in, it's to let go. It's to listen and learn and listen some more. It's to let myself feel this deep heartache. Um, Belinda Bauman, I don't know if you've talked with her on your podcast and please get Marcy Walker, black coffee. You haven't yet. Um, but she's phenomenal, um, on in, in and with podcasts, but, um, Belinda Bauman had a book that came out this, this last year, all about empathy. And empathy is something we talk about a lot in our house, uh, in raising young men, but what does it mean to put ourselves in another person's shoes? And I think that if we're going to go back to speaking about white supremacy or privilege, or sometimes a word that might be more palatable to folks is advantage when it comes to thinking about the advantages that have been ours, if ours, um, is in, if we're speaking about white folks, um, the advantages that we haven't had to enter in and to feel that pain and, um, and in and by and with othering people, we've therefore just distance ourselves. Absolutely. But once our eyes begin to see, we can't unsee. And once our ears begin to hear, we can't unhear. And so this is where we're left going, oh, maybe all I really can do is, is just sit here and, and hands wide open say, okay, God. I've gotten this wrong. What, what, what's next? Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Last week I had this moment sitting on the couch where I, to walk back a little bit, I've spent the, I'm a neogram too. And you don't have to be a seven to want to avoid pain. <laughs> I feel everybody's pain. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's my gift to my friends and my community around mm. me. I'm intimately aware of the pain around me and I will willingly carry it for you if you can't carry it yourself. 
Mm. And but you know, as many Enneagram twos, I haven't been aware of my own needs. I've had really bad boundaries in in sustaining what do, how do I cope with the volume of pain that I'm aware of. Uh, sure. all that kind of stuff. And so I've spent the better part of this year sitting on my couch with God mm. teaching me all about my emotions, how to mm. be present in my body, how mm. to uh, slow down and mm. really tune in. And, you know, learning so much from amazing people like Andy Kolber and others mm. on all the stuff to do with trauma and how our brain works. So the, all that's to say that I've become very mm. familiar with identifying my emotions as they come and go, choosing and, and being more aware of when they are within me and when they're coming in from others mm. and understanding that I actually do have a measure of choice in what I feel, mm-hmm. which was helpful for me mm. to bear the burden of being in a very, a very emotionally present person. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I had this moment sitting on the couch last mm. week I became increasingly aware of a great writhing mass, a sea of pain that Mm. I was perhaps had just begun to put my feet into. Mm. And I had this very present awareness. Oh, this is nothing to do with my own Mm. pain. Gotten pretty familiar with that or the pain Mm. of those immediately around me. I, I do think this is, a result of opening my eyes and ears mm-hmm. at a much deeper level than I've allowed myself to so far mm-hmm. of racial injustice and uh, and probably even pain that God carries, like pain in the heart mm-hmm. of the divine Yeah, about the way that he is hurt, right? Christ is so clear, mm-hmm. like whatever you've done for the least of these you've done for, for me. And so maybe yeah. in there, there was a grief as well at at the way I have hurt the Lord mm. um, and the way the Lord is being hurt by, by others. I don't, it's not all about me, but, but again, what I was as aware of this pain as I was, mm. I was equally aware that I could choose to not feel it. Mm. And that was like, I think the whitest moment mm. I'd ever had. I was like, mm. I could just turn this off. Mm. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm. Maybe I will later on in order to function Mm. with my day and be present to my children. But what an advantage Mm. that is that I can turn it off. Mm. And it's Mm -hmm. very easy. It would be very easy. It's honestly not easy now, given the journey of the last 36, 48, 72 hours. But conceptually, I'm married to a white woman, white children, in a white neighborhood, in a fairly white city, and I could close the doors and just zoom in on my little world and not feel a thing of the lived daily injustice that so many people feel. Mm-hmm. How, how, how is that for you after all? all these years and what you've chosen to open up in your heart is that do you do you retain the ability to not feel it or or are you or have you lost that advantage quote unquote that's a great question um i i I think it's a both and i think Mm -hmm. that if i really wanted to i could absolutely choose 
Um, I, I could absolutely choose to distance myself. Um, but I also, I live, I, I, I live in it. It's, it's my world. Um, it's my husband and my sons. And I don't think that there's anything that can distance me from them. Um, because of how we're rooted together. Uh, but, and, and I think that that is where, you know, sometimes that's where the conversation can become convoluted. And especially for, um, I've had, I've had different white folks and different people that I've been in conversation with who will then say, well, but of course it's different for you. It's different for you because you're married to a black man, because you have, um, because you're raising kids of color. So it's different for you. And, and if I, I could interject, yeah. the insinuation yeah. surely is that it's slightly easier for you. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Somehow. So, but that's where, um, you know, this isn't about, about, um, th this isn't about me understanding issues of race because I'm married to a black man or because, um, my, my kids, um, you know, because of the color of my kid's skin or because of who my father-in-law is. It's, it's none of those things. I enter this instead going, what does it mean also to rate, to, to wrestle with my own racial identity as a white person, which is really at the heart of our conversation here. And so it's not then even about, um, about all those outside relationships. Um, it is, and it isn't, it's the both and, but instead it's about what is going on in me and with me and what is the work that I need to do and get to do? What is the change that, um, what is the change that is happening in here? Um, as, as I as, as I, again, wrestle is kind of the only word that comes to mind, but as, as I wrestle with what it means to be white yeah. and to live in white skin in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. How have your have your have your friendships changed in terms of <laughs> visible? Oh, Jonathan. Well, you and I are starting today, so <laughs> that's a win. Um, you know, I in addition, um, and you may have picked up a, a, on this in the book. So, in addition to me being on a journey of my own racial identity, I've been on. I've been. Um, on a, a journey of theological shifting and or um, there's, there's just been a theology or a shift within my faith over the last decade, 15 years, really. And so to be honest, uh, the world from which I came from, hence I came, whatever the phrase is, but the world that I came from, um, both growing up, but especially in my 20s in college and in my 20s was um, was was pretty conservative, um, conservative Christian. Um, the ministry that I worked for is a, is a conservative Christian organization. I think they would probably hail themselves as uh, postmodern, um, maybe on the outside, but theologically, they're rather conservative. And so I don't say this to make this about the divide between um, the conservative, conservative and progressive um, uh, divisions of faith or interpretation um, at all. And now I'm even forgetting what I was starting to say here. Friends changing. Yeah. I was like, I was like, what is the point of this story? Cause I'm just talking and I need to shut up. Talking's good. I need to listen, learn and listen some more. But, um, but you're the guest here today and I'm just another white man. So let's yeah. listen to you. Oh my gosh. Well, but so, so I say that I just turned 40 last year. And so really the first, um, three quarters of my life, the first 30 years of my life, 
um, we're in this world. And if you were to, um, if you were to look on my Facebook feed or even scroll through my phone, um, there, there still are a lot of folks who are, who operate in that world and with that mentality. And I think, um, and this, and, and a lot of, and again, I say this, I don't, I know I don't need to make all the disclaimers, but, um, this isn't about me interpreting scripture one way and you interpreting it another. Um, truly, if this is about the body of Christ, then I do, I do believe in the unity of the spirit. And I do believe that that is who God is and that that is what God intentions. Um, but, um, it, it has been a journey that, um, that has meant that I've lost people. Um, I've lost friendships because, um, especially those who are white believe that, um, not everyone, but a, a lot of people believe that, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've gotten super liberal and maybe that's true and that I've gotten super political and maybe that's true. Um, and that, um, you know, that I'm, I'm not, I mean, I've even had, some, <laughs> I had one person who, who, um, emailed me and I, I very nicely blocked them. Um, you know, but he said, he said, you're not, he said, he said, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. And I said, Oh, buddy, buddy, <laughs> like this is the deepest and truest interpretation of the gospel I've ever encountered. This is God and this is Christ. So, you know, the, I was just telling some folks yesterday, um, the first conversation my husband and I ever had before this book became a reality. Um, it, because the, the book kind of came out of the blue. I never intend, I never intended to become an activist or to speak out about issues of justice or to even write this book. That was never my intention. I actually had another book that I had written that was just horrible that I had tried to sell. Um, literally I had just queried my 35th agent. This was probably about five years ago. I had just queried my 35th agent and I had just gotten my 35th rejection. You can insert a little expletive in there if you need to. <laughs> but I was trying to sell this book that I just thought would change the world. And it was all about how I've been a woman in ministry and I left ministry and I went through a faith crisis and I had a kid. And it was about five different books in one, mm -hmm. but it was also horrible. Mm -hmm. And um, and at the same time, an article ran that that eventually spawned this book. Mm -hmm. And the first agent I'd ever queried emailed me within 24 hours after this article ran and went viral. And she said, Kara, stop trying to sell that other book. It's horrible. It's it's no one wants to read it. But maybe that was the book to show you that you could write a book. Mm -hmm. And so I say that because in that conversation, when the idea for the color of life came up, when it just began to birth within me, the first conversation my husband and I ever had, he said, he said, I, I am up for this and I am okay with this. And I want you to tell your story, but you need to understand what this is going to mean for our family. You need to understand um, what that means to step into this space. And it didn't mean um, that I was going to, to go and become a New York Times bestselling author because big surprise, I didn't. Um, and become famous like his father did. Um, but it did mean that I would step into a sphere in which I would speak out about the things that not everybody wanted to hear and that not everybody was happy for me to say. And yet there was also something 
birthed within me that I, that it it was the, once you see, you can't unsee, you can't not see anymore. But there was something within me that, that I just said, we can't not talk about this. We can't not do this. So our world sometimes feels very small and, um, and yet I think that's okay. And I feel like sometimes I'm still figuring out who my people really are. Um, sometimes it feels like I have, I have a whole lot of people because social media, um, leads me to believe that I, that I have a whole lot of friends that way. But at the heart of it, I just go, okay, so, so who, who are, who are my people? I'm kind of a middle school kid. Once again, I had a friend say to me the the three questions every middle school kid wants to know, who am I, who are my friends and where am I going? And so right now I I think I've figured out the, who am I question? I think it kind of, man, you turn 40, you can't not figure, I mean, like, <laughs> like, who am I hits you in the face. Um, and I think I've started to figure out where I'm going. I think I'm figuring out my lane. Um, but it, when it comes to who are my friends, I think I'm still feeling that out. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's very vulnerable and very beautiful. Friends, if you are asking yourself any of those three questions, <laughs> drop us a line. Mm-hmm. Let us know. Huh, that's beautiful. You said at the end of your book that if you remain immune to fighting for justice within yourself, ultimately you're only perpetuating the problem. Uh, and I and I suspect that that's the key, really, isn't it? Um, you know, like white white people are caught in this weird double bind where it's like. And if you're listening to this and you're not a white person and you're going, oh, these white people. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Have that reaction. Once again, this conversation is somewhat aimed at helping white people. Mm-hmm. I feel like white people are often caught in this double bind where it's like, how do we participate in racial reconciliation without enabling the white savior narrative? Because we've been told that and we've realized that. And then we also know that we're not supposed to ask the people of color to tell us what to do or show us what to do, because that only perpetuates another problem. So it's like, I won't tell you what to do. Go and read the books and learn for yourself. I'm like, okay, fair. But but who are the authorized people? Who should I be? You know, and so so I have I have been I, I consider myself hugely privileged in that I have had many friends of color who have been incredibly gracious with me to point me in the right direction thank you but especially to you because i think what you're saying here if i was to summarize your message may i summarize your message please do because this is the note that i made for me and maybe you're going to say oh jonathan no that's your message that's just for you but say that if you want to because what what hit me between the eyes really was ultimately my role and my part is to have my eyes opened to the oppression so that I may get familiar enough with the subject of oppression that I can identify both the oppressor and the oppressed within myself so that I may hunger for justice and righteousness for me so that it organically and naturally spills out into everyone around me without heroics and salvation, just burdened honestly at the evil of injustice anything you'd want to add to that 
Yeah. Um, I, I think the ending is open to interpretation. Um, and I think that what you said is absolutely right. Um, the, the last chapter, I'll just give a little bit of, of background on it. Um, and I know that we probably have to be closing up shop here, but the last chapter is called the tramp, tramp, tramping of feet, which is actually, um, a line from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but, uh, but in it, it's a, there's kind of this hybrid. Um, when you were earlier trying to explain what my book is, I, I oftentimes say, I, I usually say it's first a spiritual memoir, but then I can, I kind of say it's a hybrid memoir because it's part, um, it's part spirituality. Uh, but it's also, there's a lot of historicity in it, which is very intentional. So it was me diving because that was a huge part of my learning process, um, into the stories in particular of my father-in-law and other African-American um, uh, mothers and fathers of, uh, you know, history that changed the world. Um, so it's diving into a lot of those stories, but it's also diving into theology and it's all largely very intentionally story-based, um, which was, which, uh, which was again, very intentional. But this last chapter is a hybrid of my family and I going on, um, a, a march on MLK, uh, Martin Luther, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. Day in January. So we lived in Seattle at the time we were marching, um, through the streets of downtown Seattle. We didn't get very far because one of our sons somehow got sand in his eye. I'm not sure how, but it, it becomes a hybrid chapter of marching with my husband and my sons and then of stepping back to 1966. So the Meredith March Against Fear, my father-in-law, his name is James Meredith. He had two major historical events during the civil rights movement uh, in 62, October 62, um, when he integrated into the University of Mississippi, the first black man to integrate into um, the school. It's a it's a it's a fascinating um, piece of history. If you've never read up on it, piece of uh, U.S. history in particular. Um, but then four years later, he led what's called the Meredith March Against Fear, which um, the uh, it which is also equally fascinating. Um, but the in that many historians call that the last greatest march of the civil rights movement. Um, but from that, he, he did the march. He sought to march for 30 days. He was going to march the whole month of June throughout the South, not just the state of Mississippi where he still lives, but he was going to march the whole month of June. The second day he gets shot by a white supremacist. Um, he's shot on the march. Um, and what he intentioned as a, as a one man lone march through the state ended up being again, the last greatest protest march upwards of 16, 17,000 folks. And Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, all, all these leaders um, from the from the Southern Leadership Coalition, they all came in, they began to march for him. So that becomes kind of the interlude in the center of the chapter. And then it ends with, um, you know, back to the present tense going, well, why am I marching? And and that's the part that you're picking up on and that you're telling and um, interpreting right now. And I think for me, part of my journey in entering into and owning my own racial identity has has been moving away from believing that um, that when I engage in issues of justice, it's I'm doing that for people of color. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that for people, for those who have experienced injustice and marginalization and oppression, because if I'm only doing that and I'm I'm only um putting it on other people, then again, I'm, I'm othering and I'm being a white savior and I'm not owning it within myself. So what does it mean for me to say, yes, justice is for me and wholeness is for me because at the root of the word justice, if we were to look it up is actually the word wholeness. 
So this wholeness is mine. And when I begin to actually grapple and gravitate and accept and live and lean into this wholeness that is mine in being a white person, then I can't help but want this wholeness for other people. Then it's just spewing out of me. And so that means that I'm going to lay down my power and my privilege. I'm going to seek to uplift the voices of those who have been silent. I'm going to enter into this conversation, even if I'm, even if I'm just being quiet, which I probably should be for a little while. Um, but entering in means accepting that first here also. So, so that for me, that was, that was a big part of my heart was, was going, Oh, this isn't just for my husband or my sons. And this isn't just for, um, black and brown folks, but, but this is for me. And, and when I realize that I'm changed. Amen. Amen. The preacher in me is coming out. I'll listen to you preach (laughs) on Sunday. (laughs) <laughs> my grandpa was a Baptist preacher. I'm always like, boom, there it is. <laughs> my grandfather was also a Baptist preacher, but from oh, New really? Zealand, not from oh. the United States. He was he was American Baptist. So I, I'm a huge fan of the, I don't know. If, I mean, does, did the American Baptist exist up in Canada? Not as not such. Sure we, have, we have a number of Baptist denominations that forked yeah. from one another when they weren't Baptist enough. Yeah. The American Baptists are the, um, they were originally the Northern Baptists. They split from the Southern Baptists. Gotcha. Um, yes. During, right. the, um, in the U.S. during the Confederate War. Yes. Oh, Oopsie. Yeah. I really like history. We have so much to learn when it comes to history. <laughs> Not repeating. There it uh, is. Seriously. Yeah. Guys, guys, I'm going to link, obviously, to this, to Kara's book in the show notes, but go and buy it. Go and read it. Chew on it. Let it get in your bones. Uh, like like she said, it is this really wonderful mix of all these different things. It's defi- It definitely presents as a memoir. But but yeah, suddenly you're learning all this history. And, and I did, I, I, yeah, I learned a lot. And beyond just the emotions, just the emotions, I learned all kinds of history. And your your presentation of the gospel and the theology is, is again, beautiful. And I, I really, yeah... Yeah, scratching my head with you regarding accusations that you have <laughs> stopped preaching the gospel. Praise mm. God for the fullness of the gospel. Mm. Cara, thank you so much for uh, for writing this. Uh, anything that you'd want to share? Anything else you'd want to share before I ask you to pray for everybody? Oh, wow. No. I mean, I don't have anything to share, but I'm just honored that I get to pray for folks. That's lovely. Would you do that for us? Sure. Um. Yeah. God, thank you that you are here with us in this space, whether this space is live, whether this space is listening to the podcast recording weeks after it happened. We thank you that you are here with us. You see us and you hear us. You see and hear our hearts. So God, thank you for this invitation into the conversation. Might we see that we are whole. Might we see that the particularities of who we are, the particularities that your son sees in us, that those matter deeply, that we belong, that we are loved, that we are love, that we are your image. Might we be changed by these truths when and in, is when and as we step into these conversations. We fight for wholeness. 
your name. Amen. Amen. How about that? So, karameredith.com, as well as Kara Meredith writes on Instagram and karamac54 on Twitter. Uh, check out the show notes for those links and for the link to order her book, The Color of Life, which I uh, would urge you to get, uh, no matter what your racial identity, and uh, have her story Friends, I am leaving to South Africa on Tuesday. There's going to be a little bit of a break before the next series of podcast episodes drops. I'm going to be trying to do some interviews locally, and and if I can stay online, I will, but I will not be able to edit or upload podcasts for the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. I appreciate your prayers as I'm there in South Africa working with uh, an orphanage and daycare center run by a local woman and just bring some encouragement to them. It's really exciting. I'm really pumped to go, and I'm so thankful for all of you who chipped in and supported my GoFundMe for that. So there's a, a lot of all of my funds, all of my costs are covered, and I've got uh, real money to be able to give to the center and help them. They're totally self-funded, no aid, foreign aid or government support collected there. It's very, very grassroots and close to the ground. So pray for me, pray for Maria and the children that she looks after down there, and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. 